Come, Holy Spirit, use and overrule my words and all our thoughts so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Good morning. What a joy for my wife Meg and me to be back with you all. We have been so looking forward to this weekend. Again, I want publicly to give thanks for the ministry of your pastor and rector, David. David, I am so grateful for your faithful leadership, for your love of God's word, and for your heart to disciple and care for his people. And I praise God for you and for Jennifer. Uh, and for the witness of your marriage and your family. You're a great team, and you're doing a great job, David. God bless you. And thank you, Robbie, uh, for your faithful ministry, your, uh, your passion for relationships, and your zeal to reach out to those who don't yet know, know our Savior. Uh, you may not realize that Robbie, as well as Albert Thompson of this church, serve on the standing committee of our diocese, as did David in the past. That's the elected uh, leadership body of our diocese. And I think much to his surprise, Robbie also chairs our finance committee. Uh, but we're, we're very grateful to you, to you for sharing your leaders uh, with the wider church. Uh, thanks also to Judy and Jonathan and the vestry, uh, to your deacon Ed. It was great joy to be with you and Sheila in Israel this past winter. Uh, and thanks also to your superb staff team and indeed all of you who serve the Lord so faithfully in this church. I praise God for you. I bring you greetings from our Archbishop, Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America. Um, was with him this past week at our um, at meetings of our annual meeting of our provincial council and our big provincial assembly. Uh, he was reelected uh, for another five year term as our Archbishop, which we're all delighted about. And he sends his warm greetings to you all. Well, you all are in a sermon series called The Unforgiving Minute, drawing on a phrase from Rudyard Kipling's famous poem, If. You've been looking at pivotal moments in the life of key figures in the Bible, and I've been listening to them along with you, albeit online, uh, as you've looked at David and at Moses and at Jesus's healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Today we come to Abraham and the strategic moment when God again revealed himself to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and he made a great promise to him, a promise of countless descendants and a land for them to possess. And in that moment, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham's faith, we're told, was credited to him by God as righteousness. Abraham was accepted by God, not because he was virtuous, not because he acted in some heroic way, but simply because he believed God. He trusted God. And thereafter, God is forever known as the God of Abraham. And Abraham, because of his faith, becomes a model for us. In the letter to the Romans, the apostle Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Abraham shows us how we too can come to know God and what it means to belong to God. Abraham shows us 
how we enter into a relationship with God through what God has done for us, not through what we do for God. We do not achieve salvation. We do not earn it. We only receive what God freely gives to us. The great English evangelical Bishop J.C. Ryle likened this experience of receiving God's saving work to a dying patient taking the doctor's medicine that saves her, or to a drowning man taking hold of the Savior's hand and being pulled ashore. There's a receiving on our part to be sure, but the action, the work is done by the Savior, not the saved. And it's to the Savior who belongs the credit, not the saved. The Bible calls this being rescued by God, uh, being justified. We are justified by faith. That is, we're made right with God, not by any merit we've earned of our actions, but only by what God has done for us in sending Jesus to be a sacrifice for sin. And the key to understanding Jesus' sacrifice is knowing that, both God, that God is both holy and loving. He is both just and merciful. God is holy, and his holiness means that he can't tolerate sin. The prophet Habakkuk says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And at the same time, God is loving. And his love requires him to reach out to his people no matter how disobedient we are. You see, on the one hand, God's justice demands that sinners be condemned for their actions. But on the other hand, God's mercy compels him to save us. So the question arises, how can God be true both to his holiness and to his love? God can't compromise his justice by ignoring sin, and he can't deny his love by destroying us. How can God be both just and merciful? The answer is this. God can simultaneously express his holy judgment and his merciful love by himself providing a substitute for the sinner so that the substitute receives the condemnation and the sinner receives the forgiveness. Now, while this is explicitly taught in the New Testament, the groundwork for understanding it is laid in the Old Testament. Many of the rituals and requirements of the Jewish law prepare us to grasp what Jesus has done for us. And so in the Old Testament, there's much foreshadowing of the death of Jesus on the cross. Perhaps the earliest example of this comes when Abraham is told by God to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice. And Abraham again demonstrates his faithful trust in God. Even though God has promised Abraham countless descendants through his son Isaac, Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac. Isaac's been born to Abraham and his wife Sarah late in life after decades of infertility, and sacrificing this miracle child seemed utterly foolish. Yet Abraham was willing to trust God and obey. And as they went to the mountain of sacrifice, Isaac asks his father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb. Christians hear those words as foretelling the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, substituting himself for sinners. God stopped 
Abraham from sacrificing his son because it would be God's own son, Jesus, who would offer his life as a sacrifice. Jesus was without sin, yet he went to the cross for our sins as a substitute for us, taking upon himself the punishment we deserve, the punishment for the sins of the whole world. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. The Bible says that in our sinfulness, all people are enemies of God. But when we put our trust in Jesus, God in his infinite goodness and mercy puts our sin upon Jesus. And he treated Jesus as if he were the sinner and he treats us as if we were righteous. Like Abraham, we undeserving sinners are justified. We are accounted righteous in God's sight. And then made right with God, we're able to share God's transforming love with other sinners. As God had said earlier to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. For some, Rudyard Kipling's unforgiving minute comes precisely as a call to love as Christ loved us, to forgive someone who has hurt us, even hurt us deeply, to be an instrument of grace and healing in the life of another. Such was the case for the Reverend Anthony Thompson. 10 days ago, Meg and I were privileged to see an extraordinary documentary film called Emmanuel. Emmanuel tells the story of the shootings at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, when 21-year-old Dylan Roof killed nine African-Americans attending Bible study in the church basement. Dylan Roof had become a self-proclaimed white supremacist. He chose to travel to Charleston, the cradle of the Confederacy, to kill the pastor and members of the city's preeminent African-American congregation in the hope of sparking a race war in America. Ten months before, Ferguson, Missouri had erupted in violence after Michael Brown was shot in an altercation with a police officer. Just two months before, Baltimore had erupted in violence after Freddie Gray died in police custody. But things unfolded very differently in Charleston. And that was due in no small measure to how God worked through the obedience of faith in the pivotal moment in the life of the Reverend Anthony Thompson. Anthony Thompson is a priest in our church, the Anglican Church in North America, in our diocese of the Southeast. His wife, Myra, was one of those killed by Dylan Roof. In fact, it was Myra Thompson who led the Bible study that night. Anthony's story is a central part of the film, Emmanuel. And a few of us here were blessed to hear Anthony speak just this past Monday evening at the opening Eucharist of the Anglican Church in North America's Provincial Assembly. Dylan Roof attended the midweek Bible study at Mother Emmanuel Church twice. On the first occasion, he was welcomed with warmth and graciousness by the group. He said nothing, but Myra Thompson later told her husband, I hope he comes back. On his second visit, he arrived late, 
but the members of the group stopped their study and each one greeted him and introduced themselves. The pastor pulled out a chair next to him at the table. Someone opened a Bible to the passage they were studying, the parable of the sower, and handed it to Ruth. He sat silently through the study that Myra led. And then during the closing prayer, he pulled his gun, firing 74 shots, killing nine saints who had shown him nothing but love. The next day, Ruth was caught and arrested. And the following day, less than 48 hours after his killing spree, he was to have his bond hearing. Anthony Thompson wanted to be nowhere near Dylan Roof. And so he told his family that he would not be attending the hearing. However, his children wanted to go. They insisted that he go with them. Anthony reluctantly agreed, but he set strict ground rules. He told them, we're going to sit down and be quiet, saying nothing to anyone. As soon as it's over, we're getting up and leaving. Those are the only conditions I agree to go under. Dylan Roof was not in the courtroom, courtroom, but he was linked in via live video feed set up between the courtroom and a room in the nearby jail. The judge startled everyone present by inviting members of the families of the victims to step forward and speak if they wish. When the judge called for a representative of the family of Myra Thompson, Anthony heard the voice of the Lord, a voice he knew, a voice he had heard before. Anthony was refusing to speak, but God whispered to him, I have something to say, Anthony. Anthony's moment had arrived, the pivotal moment of his life. Anthony obeyed immediately, and he stood up still having no idea what would happen. The judge looked at him and said, sir, do you want to say something before this court? Yes, sir, Anthony responded. Please come forward. In the deathly quiet and palpable tension of the courtroom, Anthony stepped to the podium and looked at Dylan Roof's face in the TV monitor. God put words in his mouth and he said, I forgive you and my family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and change your attitude. No matter what happens to you, then you'll be okay. Do that. You'll be better off than you are right now. Anthony records that when he spoke the name Jesus Christ, Ruth's fixed, unblinking, downcast eyes looked up for a moment. And Anthony was allowed to see not that unfeeling mask that Ruth had put on, but a fleeting expression of guilt and shame. As Anthony describes it, the hardened racist in that moment showed himself to be yet another unremarkable sinner. And in a flash, Anthony's life was forever changed. In his words, 
I experience the unmistakable peace of Christ's love filling my entire being. At that moment, I feel free, as light as a feather. As I return to my seat, I sense God calling me to a new purpose in his kingdom, a new beginning, a new mission in Christ to spread the gospel of unconditional biblical forgiveness. A reporter who was there expressed what countless others must have thought. He wrote, Thompson's wife was not yet buried and he was actually offering Ruth a way to salvation. Unlike in so many other places where racist violence triggered more violence, in Charleston, God's forgiveness through Anthony Thompson brought a very different result. The city erupted in grace. To everyone's shock, Charleston witnessed no rioting, no assaults, no violent protests, no arrests, no further bloodshed. Hordes of reporters descended on Charleston to record the anticipated violence as they had gone to Ferguson and Baltimore and all too many other places. But instead, they saw a city coming together. As Anthony puts it in his powerful new book called To Forgive, the media arrived in Charleston aiming to film bloodshed and riots, to capture sensational shots of revenge and violent confrontation. Instead, they returned home with portraits of people showing biblical forgiveness in vivid, compassionate color. Blacks and whites embracing, each offering love, support, and comfort to one another. Anthony Thompson's unforgiving minute turned out to be a minute filled with forgiveness for a sinner in need of grace and forgiveness for a city and a nation in need of healing. Anthony's story shows us so beautifully that sharing the forgiveness of Jesus is truly the most powerful weapon we have. His story calls us to love our enemies too, to forgive those who hurt us, even those who hurt us deeply just as God in Christ forgives us, to release our bitterness and anger so that the love of Jesus might flow through us to others, and so that in forgiving, you and I might truly know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Amen.